Welcome to the People Analytics and Future of Work podcast with Al Adamson. Hey, welcome back. I'm here with Paul Rubenstein, longtime friend, colleague, Chief People Officer of Vizier. Paul, how are you doing? I'm great, Al. Considering, considering what's going on in the world, I'm pretty damn good. Yeah, well, well, good. Thanks for making time for me today and for the broader community, because you have obviously been very active over the last few weeks in responding to what is now COVID-19 or the global health crisis or whatever you want to talk about it. And you have been in this field of human capital, people analytics, whatever you want to call it, for a long time now. And you know we've known each other for you know a number of years. For those, however, who don't know you, you mind giving a quick introduction? Sure. I'm Paul. Like Al said, I'm the chief people officer at Vizier. I'm a first-time chief people officer. You know, most of my life has been spent in consulting. And I was GM of some businesses at Aon Hewitt, which I loved, and got early in on people analytics when we were looking at, you know, what we did. And that's really how I got involved in that community. It's, geez, it was like eight, nine years ago. And now there's lots of conferences and there's organizations that are just about people analytics. So it's been amazing to watch this entire industry grow. You know, I'm really proud of what like you and your team have done and the sort of amazing community that's grown up around the most important thing, which, you know, is finally helping people see the truth through data. Right. So it's been yeah. a noble mission. Well, I mean, let's just pick up on that straight away because we have the John Hopkins dashboard out there, which a lot of people, I mean, literally millions of people are looking at each day from policymakers to organizational leaders to those in HR. And you all have taken a leading effort in effectively staging that data relative to an organization's HR or people information. Can you speak about what you all are doing for your customers and what you're advocating others do? Sure. I mean, you know, this is at the Look, this is at the core of people analytics. And I, you know, this is not meant to be a political statement in any way, shape, or form, Al. But mm-hmm. if you think about the data and the patterns you see with data, if you trust data and believe in it, people would take actions around the, you know, the COVID-19 crisis faster than they ever did. If people actually were like, oh, you know, it's funny, there's always the thing that has held back people analytics as a field, you know, from you know, just the thing that slows its growth is this notion that I don't actually believe a problem until I experience it myself. If anything good comes out of this crisis, it's that people will start to look at data and patterns and say, oh, hey, science, this is happening. Yeah. I, you know, I may not experience it myself, but so, you know, we sat, you know, Dave Weisbeck, I'll never forget, you know, it was like January and, and when the virus started hitting and the Johns Hopkins data first went up and, you know, we're talking about three and four digits in numbers, right? You know, and we're looking at this, we're going, this doesn't look right. This curve looks bad. Now, look, I, I, I live in an, in an environment full of, you know, data wonks. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're like, this is really bad. This is actually going to change things. We believe in the data and patterns and it's our business. I'll never forget, you know, we shut down air travel early and, you know, people are like, what, what are you doing? You know, and, and in hindsight, you know, people are like, wow, you guys acted early. And, and this is what I'm hoping people start to understand mm-hmm. is look at the data, act early, think about how history is going to judge you yeah. now rather than waiting to, you know, play cleanup later. And that comes into all. So what are we doing? We pivoted. 
we pivoted, you know, all of our customer efforts and our developers worked day and night to be able to say, what are the questions that our clients need to react right now? How do they take their existing data and how do we start to take the publicly available data? And it's actually, we've had to go beyond the Johns Hopkins data and because it, people are looking for increasing frequency and more granularity. And how do we make available the ability to take any data in your environment, right? You know, how old are your people? Where are your people? What are they working on? How much do they cost? What's the impact going to be on the projects they're involved in? What's it, whatever it is and mash it up against the, you know, where is the disease spreading? What trends? So people can manage risk. So it's been like, it's been a fast and furious effort to get that out there. Well, I mean, I celebrate what you all are are doing and I have for a number of years and I am writing an article right now that uh, I'm going to do some self shamelessly given that it's the show here, but it's really, it involves the rise of the platforms. In other words, there's the people on its 1.0, which I termed you know, research, which has been going on for you know, 100 years, give or take. And then we got all this AI stuff going on, which is you know, super valuable. But in the middle there, people on its 2.0 is effectively the ability to aggregate and consume data and make sense of it and push it out throughout an organization. And you all have you know, made yourselves you know, that core to your business. So your ability to consume this external data, put it relative to internal data, have that context and then inspiring action has been very unique. And you've been able to do it fast and at scale. So now, correct me if I'm wrong, your customers and you all internally are able to make more informed decisions than others who did not have that platform in place prior to the crisis. Is that a fair it's synopsis? Or yeah, yeah that, that, that's fair, but it's it's frustrating, right? So let's let's think about this. You know, now, is when people need the the analytics fast. My biggest fear is when people make instinct-based decisions when the data is available. In the absence of data, I totally get it. But the data is there, right? Mm-hmm. And for the last, you know, eight, 10 years as the as this field has emerged, there's been this slow plotting, oh, we've always had a data warehouse. Oh, we've always built some visualization tools. Oh, we need an army of consultants. Let's put a bunch of data together and see what we can come up with, right? That has been the traditional approach. That's one approach to people analytics and, you know, it's expensive, it's slow. And this isn't, this isn't about busier. This is bigger than busier, this issue. And then the second thing that we see in the market is people who are waiting for the ERPs to come out with some feature that gives them analytics, especially the HR, you know, ERPs. But my God, this isn't just about HR data. This is about business data and production data. There's this third group. Vizier is just one of the people innovating in this area, right? You know, there are others out there. Analytics applications that turns around and says, hey, analytics, this is for everybody. Yep. Not only should the data warehouse be in the cloud, but the tools should be in the cloud. And the tools, they shouldn't be for experts. You don't, you know, they shouldn't be held by a, a group of specialized people. This is about you know, democratizing the insights. And and it shouldn't take a year to get a new metric or something up. It should just be there. And that's how Vizier and a lot of other companies that are emerging are built. You know, Gartner is now first recognizing these analytics applications as a the way to go. It's faster, it's better. Yes, our clients who saw the future, right? So the people who bought Vizier 
and any kind of analytics application, right? There are, there are some great workforce application, workforce planning applications there. You know, it's not just us alone, but the people who have gone into that realm, they were early adopters. They, a lot of them could have built the stuff themselves, but they realized that they wanted to spend their time on true data science, not building analytics at scale. And they got in early. And so it's unfortunate, but the COVID crisis is going to accentuate the digital divide. Did you see this uh, meme going around? It's really funny. It was in Consulting Humor. It's like a survey. It says, who do you credit for your digital transformation? Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. You know, A, the CEO, B, the CTO, yeah. D, E, C, you know, COVID-19. Yeah. Here we are. The people who can respond with data quickly are getting ahead of their employee issues, ahead of their supply chain issues, et cetera. And the ones who are like, oh, I need a week to get the data. It's hard. This is, nah, this is really it, tough. I 100% agree that this disruption is going to inspire those who have not created these platforms or applications to actually prioritize that. If they don't, they're going to be a competitive disadvantage and their risk of not coming through this successfully is going to be heightened without a doubt. I mean, that's certainly biased, but yeah, I, I just don't see it any other way. To toggle a little bit, You know, we have, as you mentioned at the outset, this community and you saw this challenge, this emerging challenge early on there at Vizier. And you chose to respond by getting not only your customer base together, but broadening that, having a very inclusive gathering a couple of times over. Your next one is tomorrow, if I'm not. Yeah, tomorrow. And it, it focuses on employee engagement. So thank you. First off, thank you for doing that. You know, my personal thank you and thank you on behalf of the community to the extent, you know, I have the ability to do that because it's been massively valuable and it's been, you know, a lot of constructive conversations have stemmed from that. So can you tell us a little bit about how that came about and as you move forward, you know, what you would like to achieve? It's a philosophy. Just do the right thing. Rising tides lifts lifts all ships. If we can help everybody use data better, including our competitors, everyone benefits. The notion of people analytics, this is the time for it to shine. And it's really hard to sort through all of the stuff that's out there on the web and the practices, et cetera. You know, we were talking in the pre-show, like you're getting bombarded by email. You know, it's hard to separate the wheat from the chaff, right? So like last week, we had, you know, Jeremy Shapiro and Lexi Martin talk about stuff that they saw on, you know, here's some of the best of the web. You demonstrated, like, here's some tech that you can all use basically for free, right? You know, go out, here's some great resources, everyone. Tomorrow, we got David Green, your associate. They're talking who every week does, every sorry, every month does a curated best resource of people analytics on the web. Our goal was to get out there and share practices because this isn't about, this is not a competitive issue, right? There's two things at play. Companies can make decisions with this data that save people's lives, that Mm -hmm. get people out of harm's way and manage the uh, risk around people. People use people analytics in industries that save people, right? When I think about all of our hospital clients and all of our pharma clients and all the people who rely on their people data and understanding what do they have, where should they go, how do I manage the risk, critical stuff. So that's the first thing. The second thing is the economic problem is, I don't know what recovery looks like, you know, and how we think about recovery differently, but we've got to give people the tools and resources to make sure that you know, we preserve the essence of human capital and the concept of employment. 
at a large enough scale that the whole economy doesn't just fall apart, man. Like, yeah. this is bigger than busier or people analytics. This is this is a this is a mission of mercy. Yeah, there is, you know, without a doubt, a core humanistic element to what we are doing. I have, frankly, a fear that we're going to you know, think about financial outcomes, overweight financial outcomes, and minimize the, the human impact. And there's some precedent here in the United States you know, for that. There are companies that, based on their values of their leaders and their ethos culturally over the time that they've been in existence, they've bumped up against that and said, okay, no, we are actually going to do things that benefit the employees and it's going to affect our, our bottom line. Obviously, businesses have to sustain. They have to prudent yeah. financially. However, historically, and I recall in the early 2000s and again in 2007, 2008, where I had heard leaders say, I'm flying blind. I don't have enough information on the workforce capability you know, from a skill-based perspective, capacity, what they're able to handle. And now, to your earlier point, we have the data, but do we, we have to use it? We have to use it and we have to source it. We have to pull it together in a meaningful, actionable way. So I'll leave you with this question. I am seeing the emergence of people analytics leaders being uniquely positioned to talk about the future of work you know, relative to employees, gig economy, outsource providers, AI disrupting how work gets done and effectively augmenting what people are capable of doing. So is that something that you're seeing or that you hope to emerge? Again, I'm being shamelessly projecting on this, but this is what I am seeing. So we're seeing it, right? So, you know, look, we're, again, we're going to come back to this digital divide, those who understand their data and, and use it and those who don't, right? So skills or proxies for, for skills, right? You know, okay, so let's say, and let's say you don't have this amazing inventory of everyone's skills. You have enough data that you can go out and start to, you know, come up with the 10 key things that are going to be important for the future yep. and start to ask people to put that data together and mash it up against your cost data, et cetera, and you know, whatever else you have in human capital data. It doesn't have to be that fancy. You can get creative with it. The second thing is in, in the future of work, and this is where, so you come back, you talked about the recovery, right? The last recovery, 2008, 2009. Mm -hmm. And when we think about, you know, so I've been doing a bunch of interviews in prep for upcoming forums. I remember, you know, the first thing we think about layoffs was seniority, tenure, who's been with us the longest? How do we first in, last out? You know, companies have, are looking at it differently. I don't know if this is a good or bad thing. This just is. Number one, they realize that the work is going to be fundamentally different after this, the nature of work, right? Constrained resources, the norm of distributed workforces, you know, people accelerating their lack of desire or need for real estate, you know, the concept of delivery, yeah. you know, in many industries, you know, what does it mean for storefront and how people order and consume things? Like, There's a lot of rethinking the business model. That said, you can look at the skills, but you can also think about agility. Mm -hmm. So I'm starting to hear stories of companies that are making their, you know, hey, how do we preserve our human capital? Which are the people most agile? Which are the people that will be able to adapt to new business models? And these are some hard choices that are going to be made. But how do we cut to the core, but still preserve our, you know, capital? People struggling with the notion of, you know, did an interview where they were struggling with the notion of, hey, we're not going to sell anything right now, right? 
in some industries. So some people are benefiting from this, you know, but we're not going to sell. So we better cut our go to market. But, you know, the old way was to, you know, just shut it all down to zero. Mm -hmm. But how do we, you know, if you're going to play to win or play not to lose, right? right? So how do you keep enough of a go to market going so that when the recovery does happen, you actually accelerate? These are tough choices. Having a model or a plan for this, even if it doesn't account for everything, is it more important than winging it? I couldn't agree more. And this whole notion, which given my background, I, I was with Ernst & Young in the 90s. And at that time, Cambridge Analytic uh, Associates, I believe, yeah. and not Cambridge Analytica, but you know, no, yeah, at, know. out of Boston, you know, yeah. and their scenario planning was very big. And so you know, fast forward in the HR, you know, this idea of doing scenario planning, given different factors, very different variables that enter into the macro economy, as well as the my industry, you know, that kind of fell out of favor because you know everything was right here right now you know this quarter's profit you know that's what matters now you know we're in this state many organizations and governments got blindsided by this so the notion of scenario planning arguably is going to be more important not only 3 4 years out but 3 4 months out and again i would put forth and i'm interested in your thoughts how people analytics can facilitate that you know ongoing with a new group. And this is where I'll add to this because Josh Burson, McKinsey, Mercer, Willis Towers, Watson, and myself, I can throw myself in there. We've been talking about the need for new management models. Like we've been this hierarchical siloed thing for so long. But now, you know, like you said before, what we're producing with Workforce Insight affects facilities, affects, you know, obviously HR, IT, operations on down the line. So, you know, do you believe that we're going to get to this new place where, you know, we're going to manage differently? We have to, and it starts with the plan, right? Mm -hmm. Workforce planning, right? Remember this fun work? (laughs) Here's our demand. Here's, you know, how many, you know, what we can afford. Here's how many people we'll need, right? And went in a binder or a Excel spreadsheet and sat there forever. The reverse is true now, right? And for, you know, A, what people do we have? Mm-hmm. What can we actually produce with them, right? Because, you know, you actually start with the skills. It's not even about the supply. It's the skills. What can we actually produce? You have to do two plans concurrently, your short-term and your multi-year, right? You're, you're running both plans constantly saying, okay, you know, here's my three-month plan. Where does that three-month plan, right, the reality of it, get me to three years out, right? Mm-hmm. Because it yep. takes time to add skills, get rid of skills, you know, change out the workforce. I still think that for some industries, you're going to still have a constrained labor supply, right? I'm interested to see what some of the LinkedIn data comes out for April. The March data was surprising. Like tech hadn't been hit that hard yet, but I'm, I'm waiting to see the April data. But it's, it's reverse, man. Human capital is the currency to a large extent. It's not the means to an end anymore. Just to take off on that and go internal to Vizier, if you don't mind, because as the chief people officer, you're making decisions on behalf of, you know, your workforce, how to communicate, you know, how to put together policies, both, you know, in the midst of this crisis and potentially, you know, after. So is the frequency of your leadership team conversations, you know, heightened, you know, is the nature of those conversations different? I would imagine so. So what does that look like, if you don't mind sharing? Yeah, so sure. I'm happy to share insight. We spent the last you know, year building 
communications from a structure, right? People know where to go for what there's, you know, you know, we're, we're a little bit broadcast journalism-y like every month there's, you know, in all hands, you know, there's a site for people to go to, to read news articles. People know what to see in an email. People know what to see in Slack, the difference between the two. We know how to cascade messages. So there's a, a big muscle memory we put into play, right? Before we entered crisis mode. That mm-hmm. said, we dialed it up, right? Mm-hmm. So we are meeting every other week with Mm -hmm. all the employees. We are meeting on the off weeks with people who manage people. Our manager resources skew young and they may not be the most experienced people leaders. So we've got to give them extra support right now and help them answer the questions that they they themselves may have and may have trouble answering for others. The tone of communications for us is what it always is, you know, probably too transparent and too blunt. You know, if you ask anybody who works here, we're, you know, pretty direct. Our leaders are very direct. You know, when things are good, they're good. When things are bad, they're bad. Uh, Way to be. Authenticity has even great currency. It is the currency. Trust. Like a reporter asked me during this, well, how are you, how are you changing your messages to make sure employees don't panic? I'm like, stop. This is a global economic meltdown and a global health crisis. You cannot sugarcoat it. Yeah. All you can do is give people, you know, tell them when you don't know something, you don't know something and you'll figure it out that there is no playbook for it. Number two, be honest, give them context. You have to remember there's a bunch of people in your workforce out there that don't remember 9-11. Mm-hmm. They don't remember the 2008-2009 economic meltdown. They don't know how to process this. So you got to give them context and then you got to measure my biggest fear in a lot of organizations is that people make crisis decisions based on sound bites and they're coming through the telephone game, right? They're cascaded up when you, I mean, you've worked in large companies, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, this manager tells this manager who tells this one, right? And so the telephone game distortion plus whatever political interests or, you know, interests everyone have, how during a crisis can we collapse the leadership's view of what's going on in the workforce but without all the noise of middle management. 100%. In the middle of this, we did an engagement survey and a COVID-19 response and work from home survey. About two thirds of our workforce had never worked from home before. Wow, yeah. You need uh, to know that before because there's- <laughs> We never thought to ask it, right? You know, we wanted to understand, where, do people know where to go for help? We want to understand, do people know what their priorities were? Were managers you know, able to, did they have confidence? What were they worried about? People are worried about you know, work from home, right? This isn't work from home, by the way. This is, somebody described it to me the other day as, this is work from home because we can't go to the office and we have to work from home in the middle of a global economic crisis. That's yeah. different than the old concept of work from home. Our people who regularly work from home are struggling just as much as other people because of childcare. So, you know, our, when you think about communications, it isn't just communicating, it's listening and using all of the great data that comes from engagement survey and, and, and continuous listening. And we're going to do it every month, right? Because I'm also worried that you get this adrenaline bump from the first set of crisis response. Yeah. And, you know, where is this going to go? I don't know. I don't know what new issues are going to emerge. Yeah, let's talk about that, if you don't mind, because I am very curious into how the habits being formed now are going to affect how we exit this crisis. 
because, you know, we're kind of, how do we manage boundaries in a boundaryless existence right now? And you, I give you kudos and your leadership team because you're attentive to people struggling, whether it be kids or, you know, their, their living situation. I know one, you know, he was in transition. He lives in a one bedroom apartment with his girlfriend. And now they're, you know, on top of one another. And that's obviously provides some relationship strain, at least for some. <laughs> We've been talking about like, are there going to be more babies or more divorces? You know, what is, what is, what is, what is going to come of this? So, you know, you think about like, part of this is how do you even sense, what new things do you want to sense about the workforce? So like we asked a really silly question, what does your work environment look like? Because when I think about some of our leaders, they walk around the office, right? And you can sort of see how people, we have people in their bedrooms. We have people in shared workspaces. We have somebody in a garage. We have somebody who, like, you name it, kitchen counters. So it's important to sort of visualize what the new norm of the workplace is. Second thing is, you're right, the boundaries are hard. We got interesting survey comments like, all of my meetings start and end on time for the first time since I worked here. (laughs) (laughs) So I was talking to Ken Matos at CultureAmp, right? We're talking about this interesting concept, like the stuff that goes on at the beginning of a meeting or before a meeting or after a meeting wraps the context for decisions that are made. And so, you know, if you're like, I'm, I'm getting, I turn on my screen, I'm on, we make a decision. I turn off my screen. What is lost? The casualness, like all work from home and remote workers struggle from this, like the sort of casual interplay and the stuff that smooths it over. I often think about work and decisions as paving stones and official communications as paving stones, right? Mm -hmm. And if you think about a bunch of paving stones, right, laying in a driveway and you drive over them, they rock, they crack. It's the sand. It's the white, it's that sand and, and that sort of unstructured part of the work and the unstructured part of our jobs that fills it in and makes it a smooth road to go over. Hmm. How do we recreate that? Paul, you're a poet. That was a beautiful image. <laughs> I'm gonna run with that. <laughs> I'm gonna see that when I try to fall asleep tonight. You're absolutely right. And I, I think that visual is very powerful because. What I'm hearing is that you're taking a proactive position as a leadership team to lay those out. And you're also conscious of the gaps that might emerge over time. And there might be then a opportunity for you to consciously fill those gaps or do something. To- Just be clear, Al. We know the gaps are there. We have not figured out how to fill them all in. Yeah. Some of this has to emerge. That said, virtual happy hour. We did, you know, those are those are happening. I have virtual coffees. I do stand-ups with my HR team at 8 a.m. every morning, right? I, I almost had a revolt on my hands when I started it because, you know, some of our, you know, team skews early, uh, you know, some late. And at first they were like, what? This is insane. And now it's sort of a rhythm, right? And, and you know, it, it, the good part is everyone's in touch. And, you know, we have to consciously say some days, let's just not talk about work. Let's just, you know, yeah. How often will managers, if you're scheduling work and thinking like this, ask you, how are you doing? How often are we, I'm really, I worry, like, I mean, I worry about a million things, right? You know, I mean, that's the nature of just being an angst-ridden, you know, New York Jew, right? You just, you know, angst is built into you. But like, I think about people who work from home who don't have families 
at home who, who are truly isolated, who mm-hmm. don't have strong social networks. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm really, I don't have an answer for this. I don't have an answer for the work from home, right? All I know is that we better at work reach down and find a level of empathy that maybe we've never even thought about, right? Yep. That we didn't even know was inside of ourselves. And I will tell you that if we do empathy right, innovation will happen. If we listen and are attuned to the challenges, even though we may not experience themselves as leaders, or depending on where we are in the workplace, if we listen to the challenges of employees, and instead of rejecting them as like, well, I figured it out, why can't they figure it out? There's a market opportunity for how work is transformed in listening to that. That, plus your own agility, not having a fixed mindset, mm-hmm. That's where innovation will come. Please, I implore everybody who's listening, do not address this problem and this crisis. You know, A, find the opportunities, right? Don't try to, you know, go back to the old. This is a time to go back to the new. You will succeed if you enter this with the beginner's mindset. Mm-hmm. Have an open mind. Don't use your own frame in this, you know, mm-hmm. your old frame. Uh, Paul, it's, you know, in running a, a conference and I have for years been prodded to, hey, Al, why don't you do awards? And I'm like, I don't want to do awards because then there's, there's like losers. However, I will say this. If I were going to award a people data for good award, I would give it to you. You know, you have done outstanding work throughout your career, but certainly you have risen up, you and the Vizier team, over the last few weeks. So, you know, I'm really not only happy with what you've done uh, for the broader community, but the stance that you just clearly articulated is obviously very virtuous, it's noble, it's rooted in, you know, regarding us not as pieces of data, you know, in a spreadsheet, that there's people behind that and that we as leaders have a responsibility, not only to our shareholders, but to those people actually doing the work. And I 100% support what you say, that if we're mindful of that and we're acting in accordance with that reality, then good things are gonna happen, not only in the midst of this, but in the wake of this. So yeah, no, I, I certainly celebrate. I, 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 I do not accept the award. There are people way more deserving than me. <laughs> it's and already been bestowed. <laughs> there's, like a, there's like a whole team at Vizier that is just working night and day, you know, not just on product, but on you know engaging a community and helping our customers, our customers, right? The customers of Vizier, like who push us and are doing like really cool stuff with the data, the people who aren't customers of Vizier who are doing really cool stuff with the data that we all learn from. Early meetup pioneers like, you know, Stella Lupashore, Jerry Shapiro, you know, people like that. Like, I mean, think about where this has come from. And it's come from the fact that you're right. It may be data. It's data about people. And it's the most important humane use of data that this community, you know, looks for. It's about... Why do I work at Vizier? Beyond our our stated purpose, I believe that analytics and what we see in the data about people, it's a higher level truth. And when you start to see the truth unedited by your own human bias and you see the patterns in the data, you can unlock an individual's potential and an organization's potential. I mean, that's why I do what I do and why I choose to work where I work. We may be doing cool stuff with data, but we're helping people see the truth and get to some better kind of future now, not five years from now or when the project plan is done right now. I mean, that's the key. 
Well, I mean, Paul, again, I celebrate you. I celebrate your team there at Vizier and what you're doing. How can listeners learn more about what you all are doing in response to COVID-19 as well as just yeah. about you personally? I mean, I'm on LinkedIn. That's easy. Although, you know, I'm not, not that good at it, right? <laughs> There's a great set of resources out there that Vizier put up on its page. It's uh, you just go to vizier.com, click on the COVID response, the crisis response center. There's all the recordings of the people analytics forums. There's links to other people's forums. There are links to resources. There's just, I mean, there's a whole bunch of stuff and not just our stuff, other people's stuff. So please, you know, go check that out. Use it for good. And we can find out about tomorrow's, which depending on when someone listens when to it, it, this. Yeah, I realize, you know, asynchronous <laughs> broadcasting, right? So tomorrow we're focused on, we're trying to do it in three segments. First is like, you know, what's going on? What resources can people have? David, like I said, joining us for that. Then we've got some real experts on engagement joining us to talk about how people are using surveys. And then the third part, we're inviting anybody, sorry, organizations, not just our customers who are showing what they're doing with tech and people analytics in that section. So tomorrow is engagement. The week after that, we're actually going to talk about small business, right? SMB, like those, mm. those employers. And there's things for that enterprise can learn about that, but that is an underserved community in people analytics. So how can we get out and help them? They have the same problems, just smaller data sets. I think the week after that, we're going to talk about recruiting. Like, how do you start to think about your recruiting machine? And I think we've got, I'm waiting on confirmations, but we've got some real characters joining us for that. It's going to be fun. You are can, always welcome on, by the way. I can imagine who they are. But yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, it's the usual. So we do that. But I think the thing that you know we need you and your team's help on is the, and this is where the future work comes into play. We have to have a dialogue as a community about recovery how we plan for recovery, how we use the data for recovery, and how we use the, and how we think about the nature of work going forward. Like there's so many things we haven't thought about. If we do giant layoffs, you know, have we actually killed all the diversity gains of the last five years? How much are we going to actually put a burden on society if there are too many people out of work to the point where we actually kill our own ability to consume? I mean, there are important questions out there. We're going to look to you and the community to help us. Together. Well, we'll be discussing that very topic at People Analytics Future of Work Europe Online. So, Pafal Europe Online, it's April 28th, 29th, and 30th. So, we're going to be live streaming. So, that's going to be free to the public. We're going to have recorded videos and audio files and presentations. So, Vizier is going to be involved in that. So, yeah, I look forward to continuing discussion with you and your team. And, Paul, it's always a joy to talk with you. So, thank you for Likewise. sharing. Likewise. Stay healthy, stay safe, stay sane. All right. You do the same, my friend. Thanks for joining the People Analytics and Future of Work podcast with Al Adamson. To find other podcasts, videos, upcoming events, and to join the Global People Analytics Network, please visit us at globalpeopleanalytics.net.